and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you would like to join me, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425, this glorious Wednesday morning. It's blue sky outside my window. There's no rain. The temperature, I actually slept with the window open last night. Uh, so I have a sore throat naturally, which is always great for radio. I'm sure you wanted to know. At the bottom of the hour, I'll tell you this. At the bottom of the hour, Senator David Perdue is going to join me. He's got his opponent now, John Ossoff, who's already flip-flopped on whether or not he wants to to uh, defund the police or not, which is uh, <laughs> a little bit silly. Tomorrow evening, those of you uh, up in Habersham County and the like, you may see me. Uh, I will actually be up there in God's country. Uh, and <laughs> I know the people of Middle Georgia are saying, what about us? Aren't we God's country? <laughs> All right. Yes, and, and for those of you who are who are watching on the live stream, yeah, you're right. I'm wearing a t-shirt, uh, and the reason I'm wearing a t-shirt instead of a collared shirt is because I gotta do laundry. <laughs> okay, let's get to the president's speech, shall we? Those are the important things. Uh, I, I've gotta actually say it is a uh, it was a very good speech by the president of the United States yesterday. Uh, shortly after we got off the air. The president unveiling his criminal justice reform uh, actually met with a significant bipartisan praise. Now, the Democrats in Congress, obviously, were critical because that's what they do. But uh, here now, the president of the United States. And thank you all for being here as we take historic action to deliver a future of safety and security for Americans of every race, religion, color and creed. We're joined today by law enforcement professionals and community leaders. Though we may all come from different places and different backgrounds, we're united by our desire to ensure peace and dignity and equality for all Americans. I've just concluded a meeting with incredible families, just incredible families that have been through so much. The families of Ahmad Arbery, Botham Jean, Antoine Rose, Jamel Roberson, Adiana Jefferson, Michael Dean, Darius Tarver, Cameron Lamb, and Everett Palmer. These are incredible people, incredible people. And it's so sad. Many of these families lost their loved ones in deadly interactions with police. To all of the hurting families, I want you to know that all Americans mourn by your side. Your loved ones will not have died in vain. We are one nation. We grieve together and we heal together. I can never imagine your pain or the depth of your anguish, but I can promise to fight for justice for all of our people. And I gave a commitment to all of those families. Uh, a little bit more from the president and his uh, police executive order. We'll get into the, the meat of it here. Americans can achieve anything when we work together as one national family. To go forward, we must seek cooperation, not confrontation. We must build upon our heritage, not tear it down. And we must cherish the principles of America's founding, 
as we strive to deliver safe, beautiful, elegant justice. Safe, beautiful, elegant justice, according to the president of the United States. It really was. It just shows that if the president sticks on speech, if he sticks on speech, the president actually does a really good job. He's got to focus on his speech, but if he can do it, the president can stay on message. My my wife, not exactly a huge fan of the president's, and she pointed out that it actually was probably the best speech that he has given uh, that she has heard. I actually heard this yesterday from a friend of mine who texted me, said, are you listening to this? Now, I, I couldn't listen to the speech live. I went back and listened to it later. Uh, but he texted me. He said, this is the best speech the guy's ever given. Where's this guy been? If he just focuses, he can do it. The policies are sound as well. Uh, you want to know how sound they are? A, someone who's not exactly a fan of the president's, Van Jones, on CNN. Well, listen, I, I, uh, I think there are two things here. One is the speech and one is the executive order. Uh, the executive order is a good thing, uh, and mainly because you saw the support of law enforcement there. That gives you a sense of where the bottom is, where the floor is for reform, and that floor is higher than it has been. Uh, there is movement in the direction of, of a database for bad cops. We've never had a, da- a federal database for bad cops. That's why these cops go all, all over the place doing bad stuff. Uh, the idea that you're going to have de-escalators now alongside cops, so you can talk people down and not shoot people down. The chokehold, that's common ground now between Pelosi and Trump. So you see good stuff there. There you go. Um, you got Van Jones praising where we're headed with this. Now, what what is the president actually doing? He's not going to please everyone. But what the president wants to do with, with a, an executive order on police reform, he's putting the bulk of this in Congress's court and saying Congress has to act on most of this. But some of the things the president wants to do are aligning police forces with social workers, uh, getting rid of any uh, barriers that have been put in place due to federal regulation on police funds. Remember, uh, law enforcement is a local level uh, thing. It is a state level response. The federal government doesn't technically have a police force quibble about the FBI, the ATF and stuff, but for regular day-to-day law enforcement, that is the job of states. But states get money from the federal government and the money comes with strings and the states have to comply with those strings. And so some of the things that the president is doing is he's trying to get rid of some of the barriers and some of the strings that have uh, hindered the police's ability to work with outside entities like social workers. So, for example, one of the things the president wants to do is with the strings attached is say, you're going to have to do better training on de-escalation techniques. How do you de-escalate a tense situation? Let's do more training there. Also, let's bring in social workers. There are plenty of situations where if a social worker is the one who approaches first, you may be able to de-escalate the situation, making it clear you're there to help. You're not there to arrest. You're, you're there to calm the situation. You're not there to intensify the situation or lead to arrest or someone going to jail. Oftentimes, there are situations where the police are called and they just need to defuse the situation. But a lot of times... You, um, you, you, the police will process or the person who's involved will process that I'm going to jail. I got nothing to lose at this point, uh, which isn't the way that it is intended to work. In many cases, the police are called in to calm a situation. And when you got someone there and they think, well, I'm going to jail, 
uh, might as well go on and, and go for broke, that immediately can escalate the situation. So you bring in a social worker with the police and the social worker can ensure that, hey, we're just here to calm the situation. The police are here to keep everybody safe and we're here to calm the situation. You do techniques like that in local law enforcement, which a lot of law enforcement agencies have been willing to do, but there have been questions about federal money coming in and how it can be used in these cases. And the president wants to make it clear you can do things like that. Now, ultimately, a lot of this is going to have to go to Congress. Congress is going to have to deal with this. And there actually is some bipartisan level of support. The question, though, becomes what happens with Tim Scott's legislation? Tim Scott is the point man for the Republicans on this. Uh, one of the issues, frankly, is Tim Scott is black. Uh, he is a black Republican senator. There are only three of them, uh, two Democrats, one Republican. And the Republicans wisely think Tim Scott would be the best person to carry this forward. But more importantly, Tim Scott actually cares about this issue. Tim Scott actually knows about the issue, has studied the issue, cares deeply about the issue. Being from Charleston, he understands the issue. He understands uh, local law enforcement concerns. He understands local community concerns. And so he's got some good ideas on how to move forward with this. Uh, Some of the things that Tim Scott would like to do is uh, focus more on de-escalation and increased training requirements. I hear from police routinely. They call me, they call this program, they email, they direct message me on Twitter or Instagram. And I hear from them on a near daily basis at this point that they too agree that training sucks, that there must be improved training. There are, in fact, even over the weekend, I I didn't respond while I was on vacation and and found the emails as I was scrolling through on on Sunday evening and then Monday uh, from a couple of officers who were writing in about the um, Richard Richard Brooks situation in Atlanta uh, where the guy was killed at the Wendy's and the Wendy's burned down, uh, defending the police officers, pointing out that the public doesn't really understand. The body cam situation actually gives a a perspective where, I mean, like the Chris Cuomo audio I played yesterday, where you can have people who are not experts pretending to be experts because they're seeing the footage, they're interpreting what's going on, but they haven't actually been in the situation. And what some of these police officers have been telling me in email is that there are actually a lot of police officers who are not in the situation. So it happens, it doesn't happen. Now, that sounds like a Yogi Berra statement. Uh, Nobody goes to that place anymore because it's too crowded. Until it happens, it doesn't happen. Uh, With police officers in these tense situations, they try in their training to give them a sense of what might happen, but it it just, it's just, um, they, they need expanded training. They need more experiences before they actually get onto the police force to understand what's going on. Uh, And then there are also ways that Tim Scott wants to expand community policing efforts. Uh, So in any event, uh, that's where we are with the president. It was a good speech. The Democrats, however, are having to scramble on their own side because there are more people coming forward now on the left saying we need to defund the police. And that is way more problematic than it should be. And it's given the Republicans an opportunity to to have some some fun with the Democratic talking point. Here's uh, uh, Rick Scott from Florida. You you should be mad about what happened to George Floyd. We all should be. We know we have to make changes. We have to have more accountability. We have to have better training. We can look at those things. But the idea that we're going to get more security by getting rid of the police, 
I, I just, I've been, I, I was governor. I never heard these crazy ideas while I was governor. This, the, you know, the left has just gone off a deep end. Uh, we've got to fund our police. We have wonderful police. Are there bad apples that do the wrong thing? Absolutely. We've got to get rid of them. But I talked to law enforcement. They're disgusted with what happened. But if you want anarchy, if you want more crime, defund the police. I'm completely opposed to that. I want to fund the police. I want to support our police. I want more accountability. I want to make sure people in this country can be safe. You know, so here's a problem for the Democrats on this, and it gets to, to Rick's point. And then let me be clear and an honest broker on this issue, not trying to score partisan points here. The overwhelming majority of the Democratic Party, the Democratic leadership, the DNC, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Joe Biden, uh, they do not want to defund police departments. They, they don't want to do it. In fact, some of them have come out and said it's a stupid talking point. But there's a difference between the base and the party elders. And you know, the Republican base being driven by defunding Obamacare and repeated Republican betrayals ultimately landed on Donald Trump to blow up the Republican Party. And there are some elements within the Democratic Party starting to realize that they themselves are being put in a situation by activist members of their base that could be long-term problematic for them if they can't find a path through this. You have, for example, one of the co-founders of the Black Lives Matters organization now coming out saying we need to defund the police and literally defund the police. You've got other partisan activists on the left coming out and saying uh, all, all these people who are saying when we say defund the police, we don't really mean it. No, we actually mean it. The, this is this was the, one of the ways the Democrats initially tried to steer through this was to say we're saying defund the police, but we don't actually mean defund the police. And now you've got the Democratic activists coming out saying, oh, no, no, we really do mean defund the police. They're not going to be able to do that. And it is a it, it's it's going to blow up in the faces of the Democrats if they can't find a way through this. And this gives the Republicans an opportunity that they've seized upon to force the Democrats to stand for law and order, knowing that if the Democrats do stand for law and order, the Democratic base is going to revolt against the Democrats. I mean, at this point, the Republicans have nothing to lose. You might as well try a crack above the Democratic Party. And the law and order issue is one of those where it could help. And I I do have to say, we've had police all over the country resigning in the last few days. If you see a crime wave come out of what's going on right now, the Democrats are going to have a hard time headed into November as crime is spiking. Republicans say, hey, your side is the one flirting with defunding the police. And people will get that. Welcome back at the bottom of the hour. Senator David Perdue is going to be joining me. If you haven't seen this yet, um, let me get the actual name of the, um, let me get the name of the sheriff. I want to make sure I have this right. Um, So was Aaron Burnett, I think on CNN invited on a uh, Sheriff Williams to talk about the shooting, uh, Alonzo Williams, uh, and uh, no, this is Brianna Keeler at CNN, and wanted to talk to Sheriff Williams, who is from Georgia, from Burke County, to talk about the officer-involved shooting of Richard Brooks, and well, 
didn't go the way some people might have wished it went. Uh, this is uh, Sheriff Williams. 30 years in the business, uh, police, and law enforcement, and 27 of those years having taught use of force and taught hundreds and hundreds of law enforcement officers across the state of Georgia and other states. I just think that he's a lawyer. He's not a law enforcement officer. I think that is it's just a ridiculous statement. Uh, obviously, we saw on the video that the Brooks was engaged in a fight with the officers. They were on the ground. We know that when we're on the ground, we have a very high likelihood of being hurt or killed. It's not the place we want to be. This is not a wrestling match. The Brooks is able to take a uh, non-lethal weapon, a taser, away from one of the officers, and he flees. They give chase. He's committed to felony obstruction of an officer counts and he needs to be held accountable. So they were perfectly justified in running behind Brooks to, to capture him. He, Brooks turned back to the officers and fired the taser. And we all know I, I, this is a third law enforcement agency I've been head of, and in every agency I've gone to, I've required every officer who, who carries a taser to, to be tased with it so that you understand the incapacitation Five seconds, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004, 1,005. That's five whole seconds that if an officer is hit with that taser, that he, all of his muscles will be locked up and he'll have the inability to move and to respond. And yet he is still responsible for every weapon on his belt. He, so if that officer had been hit, he still has a firearm on his side, and the likelihood of him being stomped in the head or having his firearm taken and used against him was a probability. And so he did what he needed to do, and this was a completely justified Which is- uh, shooting. Wow, good for him. Uh, so the sheriff, Sheriff Williams, is black, and he's now under criticism for defending the police officer, which is absurd. You know, this is one of the chief frustrations here that if we are to be judged by the content of our character instead of the color of our skin, to attack this sheriff for standing by a law enforcement officer uh, because he's not standing for uh, black people is absurd. And yet it's happening. This is why you can't have nice things. I, it, it really is just just bizarre to me where the conversation is headed and not headed in this country. And that's part of the the ultimate problem here is that you have people uh, with less than pure motives now trying to hijack and steer the conversation. I don't know uh, th- that most people would disagree with the idea that there are conversations we as a people should be having in this country. I mean, I, I, I think we should. But there are also people on the left who would like to hijack us. It's amazing how many of them have decided uh, that socialism is the answer. And yet they decided that socialism was the answer for everything else. Uh, They're not questioning any of their priors. They're just using each and every situation to justify their move for communism, for socialism, for all sorts of nonsense, uh, for for economic wreckage in the United States of America because they they have never particularly cared for this country and every little grievance can be amplified 
to try to get other people to care for the country. Uh, and, and the success of this country will be over whether or not we can stand up to this sort of nonsense as it proceeds from the American left uh, these days. When we come back, Senator David Perdue is going to join me. It is Eric Erickson here. Welcome back. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, joining me, the senator from the great state of Georgia, David Perdue. How are you, sir? Good morning, Eric. I'm great. I hope you are. I am. Uh, so congratulations on on getting an opponent who can't really decide but seems to want to defund the police. <laughs> You know, I, it's amazing to me the, the radical notions that these uh, liberal Democrats are perpetrating. And then they won't stick with it. You know, when, when they hear how outrageous it is, once they say it, then they, they start backtracking a little bit. But this is what we're going to nail them with. I mean, they, they want to get rid of ICE. They want to defund the police. They want open borders. Uh, they want a Green New Deal, which is outrageous. They want to bail out all the big uh, states that have been fiscally irresponsible which would be about $6 trillion, by the way. I mean, what they're talking about is madness. Well, it, it, they are talking about madness, and it, it just seems like they want to flirt with the issue without actually committing to it, and yet they, they've got a whole group of activists out there who are hearing them say they're going to do it. it. It's almost like they got the tiger by the tail, and they're afraid they're about to get eaten. Well, they don't have any solutions except more big government, and that's been proven to fail since the Great Society War on poverty in 1965. Look, we, we know that all these, uh, you know, the deaths that we've seen from the hands of the police are just outrageous. I mean, we, even the one that wasn't at the hands of the police in Brunswick, I mean, loss of life uh, is, is a serious, and, and I think we all know that we've got to do some things about that. But imagine a world without uh, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, exercising of the law. I mean, one of the things that sets, sets us apart from the rest of the world is our rule of law. It needs to be applied, but it needs to be applied fairly in every community. And that's where we've had a breakdown, I think. There's a loss of confidence in some communities. And I personally think that we can fix that. We've got a bill that will be announced in the next half hour here in Washington. The Senate Republicans are going to drive a bill that will actually make a difference with body cams, more training to de-escalate, making the police reflect the demographic nature of the communities they serve. We know how to build the confidence. It's just that we've got to pay more attention to it. Well, you know, I wanted to talk to you about that because the president released his executive order yesterday, uh, working, having social workers work with the police, uh, doing a little more. Uh, and I, I just I, I'm trying to figure out where the Congress is going to get involved in this. I know Tim Scott has a proposal out there. I'm not sure whether or not Congress will have time to get to it, but I'm just I'm, I'm interested in, in where would you like to see this go? Well, first of all, I think. You know, we've been, I've been involved in this since I was a kid, Eric. Um, you know, I, I grew up in middle Georgia. My dad integrated one of the first school systems in Georgia. I worked in a Head Start program. I, I was involved in a, um, you know, a, a literacy effort. I was chairman of the National Commission on Adult Literacy for a while, and this is close to my heart. What Tim Scott's trying to do is bring some rational, reasonable, common-sense things that can make a difference while still allow us to, to enforce the law. Uh, we're a nation of laws, and they will be enforced. Um, but we have, you know, inalienable rights in the First Amendment, Second Amendment, all that that need to be protected. And believe it or not, police forces help us do that. But there are things in there, training, better database, um, you know, reflecting the community, um, and, de and learning how to de-escalate these situations will not deter enforcement of the law. Um, I'm outraged, though, that the Democrats want to jump to the extreme, and this is what they do all the time. 
And what they're trying to do, they want to have nationalized elections. They want the federal government to run all the elections. They want uh, to do away with the police. They think some, I guess, some community or some community group of do-gooders, I guess, community organizers, uh, will get around and, and help us apply the law. You know, we know what that would turn out to be anarchy. Well, yeah, yeah, okay. So since you went there, I'm going to go there. I, I know you probably haven't seen this because I only saw it right before the show started. The Washington Post has what is all I can describe as a fawning profile of this little collective that's taken root in Seattle and, and blocked off certain streets there. And and if a, I, I just think if a group of conservatives or Christians took over six city blocks and didn't let anybody else in, uh, they wouldn't be giving it such, such glowing coverage. But the point there is I noticed in this that everybody who has taken up residence in this little six block area, they all agree politically on everything. And it seems like the political left and the Democrats right now can't fathom that anyone might disagree with them on some of these issues and are thus trying to pursue policies that would silence anyone who really does disagree with them on how to handle law enforcement, how to deal with race relations in the country, all all of these things. They just want to shut everybody else up. Eric, you just hit the main issue in this campaign, and the Democrats are going to do everything they can to camouflage and hoodwink us into not believing that that is the, that is the essential issue, uh, I believe. If you listen to Chuck Schumer talk about what he wants to do with the majority that he thinks he's going to get, and Georgia is one of the five states that he is targeting right now to do this. This is what he has said publicly over and over for the last year. If they get the majority in the Senate, what he wants to do is to uh, eliminate the filibuster rule. That means they can do anything they want with 51 votes. Then he wants to add D.C. and Puerto Rico as two new states. That'd be four Democratic senators. He wants to add four seats to the Supreme Court, and you can better bet he would not put reasonable, balanced, constitution-supporting jurists on there. He'd put radical activists on there. He wants to add four seats to the D.C. Circuit, the uh, Ninth Circuit, and, oh, by the way, they want to get rid of the Electoral College so that California and New York, two failed states, will be the model for America. That's what Chuck Schumer is saying publicly. That's what's at stake here. They want to shut down the opposing voice. And uh, if they get the majority, I think they're very close to being able to do that, uh, Eric. Now, what are your concerns about that? Uh, There are some troubling spots, I guess, on the horizon for the Republicans. Thankfully, I I think all the polling I see sounds very good uh, for for you here in the state and the Republicans, but there are some states where you got some nervous Republicans out there. Well, I'm an outsider to this whole political process, even though I've been here for five years. I'm still the outsider in the belly of the beast. And you and I talk about that all the time on your show. I, I, I see this with a different uh, perspective. First of all, uh, I, I don't like career politicians. I don't think that's what the founders had in mind. Second of all, though, I think we have an onslaught right now where the Democrats are targeting Colorado, Arizona, Georgia, North Carolina, and Maine. And then they've added Iowa and Montana. So there are seven states with eight seats. We have a three-seat majority. And so they are. They have a different model. They are uh, growing. They're growing their ground game. They've got uh, billionaires uh, using dark money to fund their ground game. They did it in Georgia in 2018. They did it in Ted Cruz's race in Texas in 18. And they're now contracted with the Democratic Party. Stacey Abrams is taking that to 20 states. Eric. So we know the game plan. What we've got to do is make sure people know the truth. I trust the voters of Georgia. We're going to do something that was not done in 18. We're going to expose all these radical policies that the Democrats are trying to perpetrate on America in my campaign for the next five months. It really doesn't matter who my opponent is. They're going to be a rubber stamp for Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, Bernie Sanders, by the way. If we lose the majority in the Senate, Bernie Sanders will be chairman of the Budget Committee, if you can believe that. (laughs) 
putting a communist in charge of the budget committee. Exactly. Gosh, that, yeah, that, exactly. That's like putting an alcoholic in charge of the liquor store. <laughs> yeah, that's a great. Can I use that? <laughs> yeah, you, you you can use that. My my goodness gracious. Yeah. Well, let, let's let's focus on on Georgia now here for a minute because you you did have this massive primary on the Democratic side of, of people trying to run against you. They they settled on Ossoff, uh, barely getting out of it without a runoff. I was actually I've been meaning to tell you this story. I mentioned it on the air the other day. I was on a panel of journalists last week, and I don't know why I was there. I was the only one who wasn't a journalist, but all the journalists were talking to each other said, have you ever seen his investigative work? How, how is he an investigative journalist? Not, none of them knew any of his work, and I just find it fascinating how there's so many Democrats who would portray you as some aloof, out-of-touch, rich guy with, with no understanding of your upbringing versus I don't know where this guy really came from. Well, I tell you, who does know his journalistic uh, effort? That's Al Jazeera. That's true. <laughs> so, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure he's a nice guy, but the only thing I've seen he's been able to do is spend his daddy's money and have this sort of fake career. Um, look, I, you know, we we told the people of Georgia why I was running in '14. Uh, my mom and dad were school teachers. I grew up on a farm, working in in, in our family farms down there. Uh, worked my way through school and had a had a business career, and so I grew up in a pyramid of performance in my career, and that's something that that we'll talk about in here. Look, nobody has a perfect record, but what I want to get onto is what Georgians were not able to do in '18, I, I believe, and that is to expose the the radical things that the Democratic leadership in Washington and in in some of the big states really want to do with America. I just it's failed everywhere they've been tried in the world. Uh, they want to shut down the opposing voice. I think that's the major point in this thing, Eric, and you brought it out in a way. It's demonstrated. Remember, uh, what was the thing? Uh, Occupy Wall Street? Yes. Uh, or what, camp out at Wall Street, whatever it was. The Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, so the Occupy Wall Street. So they're doing the same thing in Seattle. I mean, every few years they roll this idea out, and uh, but it, it's not going to stick. Americans are smarter than that, and when they're exposed to the truth, they will react to it. Well, you know, okay, let, let, let's go down this road a little bit because I've just found it fascinating that in, in 2012, you had the Occupy movement. In, in 2016 and then in 2018, you suddenly had uh, concentration camps at the border and we needed to march on Texas. And right. now suddenly we've got riots in the streets. It, it seems like every major election year, the Democrats organize a mob to take to the streets and, and just keep people. I mean, I, I just I, at this point, I have a hard time uh, thinking that there isn't a level of coordination and that we have people in the streets every single election year agitating about something. Well, I, I can't. I have no evidence that it's organized. All that it is ironic, though, and is a is a high correlation. Let's just say that the facts are the facts, and there's a high correlation there. When if you're a Democrat and you can't talk about how you're going to get the economy back after COVID-19, or how you're going to stand up to China, or how you're going to stand up to our allies in NATO, or how you're going to defend us against Iran or a rogue regime in North Korea, if you can't talk about any of those things, what are you going to talk about? You're going to talk about the emotional issue of the day. And there's a coordinated effort. I see it in the Senate. We saw it in 18. Remember pre-existing conditions? That was a lie right out of the pit of hell. But they made it stick because they did it over and over and over again. So we, we in the, on the Republican side understand what the, the strategy is there. They can't talk about the big issues that uh, will really make America um, you know, continue to be different than the rest of the world. That's why I ran in the first place, Eric. I just felt like we were, we were headed in the wrong direction. And... Um, you know, Trump got in there and we, we had we actually created the best economic turnaround in U.S. history. 
Some people are trying to give credit to Barack Obama for that. That's just ridiculous. I mean, we had the lowest output economically in U.S. history under the Democrats for eight years. By the way, for the third Democratic president in a row, from Carter to Clinton to Obama, they reduced spending in the military by 25%. They endangered America, and that really angers me because of my kids and grandkids, Eric. So they don't have anything to talk about other than create these disturbances and then drive the media, which they can, you know, the main street media that they control the majority of. Now, you mentioned the economy. Before you get out of here, 17% surge in uh, consumer activity for May, uh, which even the people at MSNBC are having a hard time disparaging. Uh, it looks like we may start to see some, some major economic recovery before the election. Well, Georgia's leading the way. I mean, we're the best state in the country to do business. We've had three different uh, governors now that to understand uh, the precepts of how to drive economic growth. We've got a great workforce, great education institution, great health care. Um, Georgia's leading the way. Our governor opened uh, the economy up, took a chance. The president uh, is opening the economy up with a three-stage plan. I'm, I'm helping to drive that. Uh, I believe in it. I believe we can continue to open the economy. Look, look at the job creation in May, Eric. I mean, two and a half million jobs. That's, the, that's more jobs created in one month than any other month in U.S. history. That's shocking to me. It surprised everybody, uh, including me and the president. But it was, we were supposed to lose eight million jobs in May, and I would have believed that, frankly, mm-hmm. given how severe we shut everything down. But it just shows the resilience of our workforce, our economy, and, uh, and this free market system the Democrats want to dismantle. Uh, that's why I'm so active. I mean, I'm so active in this campaign. I'm this is we're fighting for really the structural future of America. That's a good way to say it. The structural future of America. Well, Senator, listen, best luck to you on the campaign trail. I appreciate you taking time to stop by and, and you know, anytime you, you want to get out there, we're, we're always here for you. Eric, thanks for getting the truth out there, pal. Thank you. Absolutely. Take care. That Senator David Perdue of Georgia, John Ossoff, the Democrats, uh, he is their nominee now. And here's the interesting thing. Ossoff, he is flirting with the defund the police effort, which is just fascinating given the way senior Democrats have run away from it. And man, that guy, uh, he's never really been vetted. And I suspect David Perdue He's going to be doing the vetting the media never wanted to do against John Ossoff. That's probably not going to end well for John Ossoff. I have to tread carefully on this. I, I actually, I saw the, the headline and I fell out laughing. Remember, re, uh, remember there was an article. Let me give the, the actual history of it. There was an article after Barack Obama was elected that referred to him as a magical, wasn't the N-word you're thinking of, but I'm not going to say it. Um, look at the, um, look at a black crayon that has Spanish translation on it and, and you'll, you'll get it. Um, I, I'm, you know what I'm talking about. Rush Limbaugh turned it into the, it was set to puff the magic dragon and it was Al Sharpton Z and Rush got all sorts of hate for it, uh, threatened to boycott stuff. And it was actually a parody of this column. And I believe it was the Los Angeles times by, uh, I think it was a, a black, uh, psychologist or sociologist writer. Um, and it just, it caused all sorts of. Well, I saw this article and I had to send it to Rush this morning. Um, here's the headline. Essential workers are the new magical, that word. 
how understanding the cinematic trope can illuminate COVID era exploitation. This is by Dolly Adekunle, who is director of patient relations and engagement at Family Health Center at uh, NYU Langone Health. I I'm um, apparently uh, so that this magical N word is at once a superhumanization and dehumanization of the black individual and our essential workers are overwhelmingly black black and brown individuals who have been neglectfully underpaid under unprotected and subjected to the racial inequities that have always existed in our white supremacist nation Capitalism has consistently demeaned our cashiers, grocery workers, delivery persons, sanitation departments, custodial workers, medical assistants, and transportation employees. However, in our national moment of crisis, their service has been rendered critical and their compliance imperative under the watchful eye of technocrats and governmental autocrats parading in democratic regalia, the essential worker is extended sufficient compassion so as to ensure their continued service and not a drop more. The essential workers bound to their labor through financial imperatives. You mean a paycheck and ideological coercion thinly veiled as professional. Oh, good Lord. And the, the the large thing is is basically that they're you're seeing minorities being trotted out and 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 made the face of something and they're forced to do it and oh, wow that the just here's the thing um first of all I, I I found it funny that that suddenly this this phrase is back uh, somewhere but also that. There's a prevailing theme in so much of this that American society is bad. That's the whole part of the 1619 Project, that the foundational underpinnings of American society are bad. That uh, slavery was was brought here in 1619, and it's been a part of us. And there was this revisionism of the American Revolution that it was all about protecting slavery. Uh, and you've got all of these people have an under, they're underscored by this desire for socialism in the country and upending capitalism. And I understand in some cases there is an issue. I was actually having this conversation last night with a friend of mine. When you're a white person in the United States who has not had to deal with Jim Crow and slavery, you're, if you are a multi-generational American family, white American family, you have had a head start in the accumulation of wealth that a black family has not had. And I understand and I get that. Uh, but I reject that the idea must be then to punish the white person now for the sins of their great-great-grandfather through a redistribution of wealth. What these activists seem to want is a socialism, an upending of the economic order that they have decided is is white supremacist. You know, is is there racism in this country? Yes. Is there systemic racism in parts of this country? Yes. Is this country a white supremacist country or a systematically racist country? No. No. 
but you'll be hard pressed to to tell the left about this. And I, I gotta there's I have a sneaking suspicion, and yeah, I'm trying to be careful here because because you know the the mob comes for everybody. I have a sneaking suspicion that one of the things that the left-wing activists are trying to do right now is just wear you out. So you just, you cry, uncle, you give up, uh, and and they can then do whatever they want. And unfortunately, I think that ends badly for everyone because what's going to happen is there will be some level of fostering resentment. And I think that resentment will build. Because one of the things that gets missed in the conversation is that there are pockets of people in this country who are not black who also suffer from systemic injustice in this country. And because they happen to be poor white people in Appalachia, you're not supposed to talk about them because it muddies the narrative that there are problems in this country. There are race problems in this country, but there are also problems that aren't race problems that are socioeconomic problems. But the solution is not socialism. It's actually more free markets. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here with a lot happening across the state of Georgia right now. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Georgia is one of only four states in the nation that does not have hate crimes legislation. There is national pressure being brought to bear on the state of Georgia to pass hate crimes legislation. The House of Representatives in Georgia passed hate crimes legislation, and the uh, House is playing hardball with the Senate in Georgia, essentially saying no legislation at all is going to pass at this point unless the Senate uh, bends to the House and uh, proceeds with hate crimes legislation. The, The House of Representatives has a rules committee that sets the flow of legislation to the floor of the House. And and the chairman of the Rules Committee and the Speaker of the House have said they will pass nothing from the Senate until the Senate passes their hate crimes legislation. Uh, The lieutenant governor of Georgia is saying not going to happen. He's going to come up with his own proposal that's going to be more strident than the House proposal. Now, here's what you need to understand about the House proposal. The House proposal is a symbolic measure that will enable elected judges to grandstand and DAs to grandstand. It actually doesn't uh, do anything other than make your life more difficult uh, with thought crimes. What do I mean by that? Well, there are two ways that hate crimes have been uh, pursued. Now, let, let me start philosophically with this. I oppose hate crimes legislation, and I oppose it because I believe it legislates thought crimes. Uh, When you commit a crime against someone, the odds are you hate them. And as a result of that, uh, there's no reason to have an additional crime for your state of mind. Your state of mind should be baked into the law. So, for example, with murder, you have malice, uh, malice of forethought. You, You have Uh, an anger, a contempt, a a hardening of the heart before you take someone's life with murder. There is a hate already baked into that law. Having an additional hate crime, it's just feel-good leftism where you are essentially codifying a a left-wing Ten Commandments in state law as secularism becomes a theology and theocracy and secular religion becomes the law of the land. You've got to have, just in, in the Bible, you have the Ten Commandments. In secularism, you have hate crimes. We're going for the crimes of the heart. 
instead of being judged by God because God doesn't exist in secularism, you must be judged by the state. The mob is God in the form of the state. Georgia is being bullied because it's one of only four states without it. The Ahmed Arbery situation has gotten the Speaker of the House and the Democrats in the state legislature to decide we must have hate crimes legislation. They, they don't want to give us RIFRA, but they want to give us hate crimes legislation. Notice the Supreme Court on Monday in the gay rights decision made a big deal out of having RIFRA on the books, and our state Republicans are refusing to give us RIFRA here, but they want to give us hate crimes legislation. Well, Jeff, one of the ways that hate crimes legislation emboldens uh, ambitious elected officials is this. It becomes an add-on. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what happens is you add on a um, you add on to the sentence. You you make the sentence more strident. So the jury finds you guilty of, let's say, the the jury finds you guilty of arson. The judge, at the request of the, the elected judge, at the request of the elected prosecutor, then decides that, well, hate was involved. You burned down the church. Not it wasn't obvious when you when you drew the SWAT stick and burned the church that you hated the church. No, no, we're we're going to also add in a hate crime, and so we're going to make you stay in jail longer. And the judge does it at the request of the prosecutor. The jury is never involved with it, and what it does it is it allows prosecutors and judges in uh, particularly progressive areas to run championing the issue of hate crimes that they have they've gone after hate crimes they've they've gone after the bad guy and by god the judge and the da they took care of it well a more legitimate way to deal with the issue of hate crimes is you actually make it a crime that must be charged and determined by a jury so the overambitious prosecutor and the overambitious judge uh, aren't the ones involved. It's the jury that actually makes the decision. The issue here then is that the overambitious prosecutor and the overambitious judge have to deal with a jury that has no ambition to even be in the jury to begin with. They're in a hurry to get out of there. They don't want to be there, but they treat these things much more carefully because there are parameters by which you could determine whether or not there's a hate crime. Well, the uh, the the House version of this allows just the judge to do it. The Jeff Duncan proposal would go much further and require that a um, that a jury be the determinant on whether or not there's a hate crime. Uh, like the House version, the Senate version would impose penalties for crimes motivated by age, gender, race, ethnicity, or sexual orientation, but it would include culture, exercise of religious beliefs, and exercising rights guaranteed by the First Amendment as protected classes. I think they should add police in there as well. Crimes against police should be a hate crime if we're going down that road. It would allow members of the community to file a warrant to force a grand jury hearing for a hate crime charge if a prosecutor doesn't do so. The charges would carry a penalty of one to five years under the proposal. And it spells out a mandate that law enforcement officials track hate crimes for the first time in the state. Now, I, I, I've got a concern with this particular provision 
that members of the community would be able to file a warrant to force a grand jury hearing for a hate crime charge if a prosecutor doesn't do so. I I have a a serious problem with that one. Now, I, I suspect this is geared towards conservatives. So let's say, for example, one of the things that the Senate bill would want to do is it would require that uh, your First Amendment guarantees, so your free speech issues. Uh, so you go to a college campus and a left-wing group uh, shuts down, violently shuts down the college Republicans. They they block the doors. They don't let people in. They, they throw poop on the people. This has not happened in Georgia, but this has happened. Uh, and they, they refuse to allow the college Republicans to meet with a speaker. And that would be the prosecutor says, well, that's not really something I'm going to prosecute. Well, it would allow members of the community to file a warrant to force a grand jury hearing for the hate crime charge if the prosecutor doesn't do so. I, I still have a I, I've got a hard time with that one. I don't think you should allow the community to be involved in law enforcement decisions like that, because essentially you also you you enable the mob in that direction. And I, I assume they'll strip that provision out. I think it would be bad. I do support, though, culture, religious beliefs and rights guaranteed by the First Amendment uh, being crimes motivated. Because, l- listen, we see on college campuses now a desire from the political left to silence anyone on the political right. We also see uh, crimes against churches and synagogues in this country. And so I I definitely think religion and religious beliefs need to be part of hate crimes legislation. Listen, uh, if if you're burning down a house because you don't like that a black family lives there and that's a hate crime, uh, you should similarly be charged with a hate crime for burning down a synagogue because you don't like that Jews live there. Uh, and you could argue, well, that's an ethnicity thing, but is it really an ethnicity thing? Uh, what, what about the, the, the white church? Uh, you burn down the white Christian evangelical church because you don't like it there in your progressive town. Uh, that should be a hate crime. And under the house version of this, it wouldn't be. Now, I, I, I and again, I, I, crimes legislation in general, but even in opposing hate crimes legislation in general, I don't think that there is a desire there by Republicans at this point to stop it. I think they want to proceed. So if they're going to proceed with hate crimes legislation in the state legislature in Georgia, what do you do to make it better? Well, first of all, uh, this can't be a one-way street. This cannot be that uh, the Republicans have to bend to the Democrats and give them everything they want, which is age, gender, race, ethnicity, and sexual orientation. It, it, it can't just be that. Uh, you can't just give David Ralston what he and the Democrats want. You've got to add to it. So you've got to protect people's political beliefs, particularly on college campuses. I think you got to add religious beliefs in there, and I think you've got to add the police in there. Uh, I, I don't know what culture means in, in this, and, and I haven't, I, I've got to read in depth what, the, well, you know, I've got the legislation right here. Uh, what is, uh, so let's see, um, in this code section, attributes mean, uh, let's see, uh, age, ancestry, color, creed, culture, ethnicity, exercise or religious beliefs, homelessness, mental disability, national origin, physical disability, race, religion, sex, sexual orientation, status of being a member of or having served in the armed forces, 
of the United States, status of having been involved in civil rights activities, status of exercising rights guaranteed by the First Amendment. Culture means the customary belief, social norms, and material traits of racial, ethnic, religious, or social groups. Serious physical injury means an injury that deprives a person or a member of, uh, of his or her body, renders a member of a person's body useless, significantly disfigures a person's body, uh, blah, 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 blah. A person commits the offense of a bias motivated uh, intimidation when such person maliciously and with the specific intent to intimidate, harass, or terrorize another person because of the person's actual or physical attributes. Uh, no, 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 no. Okay, there, there we go. Whenever a law enforcement officer investigates an incident of an alleged violation of the law regarding bias-motivated intimidation, whether or not an arrest is made, the officer shall prepare and submit to the law enforcement officer, supervisor, or other designated person a written report of the incident entitled Bias-Motivated Intimidation Report. So we're going to add paperwork to it as, as well. Well, we'll see what happens here. So the point of focusing on this is Duncan essentially has said what the House of Representatives wants to do is is give the left a win without actually doing anything. And that's what David Ralston wants to do. Uh, the Fortune 500 companies and progressive activists want the House hate crimes legislation passed because it's a feel-good measure that really doesn't do anything, but it gives progressive – uh, judges and district attorneys additional ammunition to build their career by stamping out hate crimes across the state should they ever find them. And what Duncan's saying is, is let's do a serious piece of legislation that actually tackles the issue, but we can't just do uh, race and sex and ethnicity. It needs to also include religion and it needs to include uh, political beliefs. Because increasingly in this country, hate crimes, if we're to use hate crimes, are being conducted by people trying to silence others for their political beliefs. Not surprisingly, the Democrats are opposed. You know, it, it, so it, it's it's weird, isn't it, how the left wants to provide special protections for race and ethnicity and sexual orientation and sex but they don't actually want to provide protections for people's political beliefs. It's almost as if they don't think that someone can hate if they're silencing, shutting down, or otherwise censoring people on the right. It's almost as if they might be okay with intimidation of people on the right. We're seeing this with what Google and NBC News are doing to the Federalist and others. Uh, we will delve into all of that, in fact, when we come back. I'll take your phone calls as well, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. All righty, the phone number. You want to be a part of the program? It is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. I, I want to get to this. what Google and NBC are doing to conservatives. Uh, before that, however, I I need to bring you up to speed on what has happened uh, with the police chief of Johns Creek, uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, the police chief in Johns Creek has come under, uh, he's on administrative leave and is being investigated because uh, Chris Byers is his name, 
On his personal Facebook page, he put up a post addressed to members of the religious community. And, and I, I need you guys to hear this. This is important. Black Lives Matter. It's a statement of fact. But it's also an organization. Black Lives Matter, the organization, is a far-left progressive group. Its founders have now come out for defunding police forces around the country. It wants to disrupt uh, the nuclear family and believes it's a, a essentially a, a white imposition. Uh, it is uh, against biblical sexual orthodoxy. Uh, it wants to get away from heteronormative and cisgendered behavior. Uh, Black Lives Matters is not an organization that if you are an Orthodox Bible-believing Christian that you can have anything to do with. And that's not me. That's your scripture saying it, Um, that they, they are very hostile to traditional Orthodox Christianity. And there are a number of pastors in Georgia and elsewhere who have uh, very much wanted to ally with Black Lives Matter to prove they do believe that black lives do matter. Uh, They take the organization that has embraced the statement and say, well, this must be the organization we want to partner with. And Chris Byers, the police chief on his personal Facebook page said, hey, pastors, uh, why not figure out what you're doing? What you're trying to do is ally with an organization that is is a radical organization of leftists who are actually opposed to uh, your values and are also hostile to police and, and who uh, have and some members have promoted police violence. And he also went on to say what happened to George Floyd was wrong. It was racist. There is racism. We need to fight racism. We need to stamp out racism. But affiliating with Black Lives Matters is not the way to do it. And by the way, Chris Byers, the chief of police in Johns Creek, Georgia, is correct. I've had actually a number of conversations with pastors in the last couple of weeks, several of whom reached out to me to get my take on Black Lives Matter, uh, the organization. And I've said, no, no, you, you actually really can't. Uh, partner with this organization. If you're a Bible-believing uh, church, you, this is an organization that's not compatible with your faith. Now, let me read you some of their their statements. Uh, we make space for transgendered brothers and sisters to participate. We are self-reflexive and do the work required to dismantle cisgender privilege and uplift black trans folks, especially black trans women who continue to be disproportionately impacted by trans antagonistic violence. We build a space that affirm black women is free of sexism, misogyny, and environments in which men are centered. We make our spaces family friendly, which is good, but then we dismantle the patriarchal practice that requires mothers to work double shifts. Uh, Whatever that means. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure requirement. We foster a queer-affirming network where we gather, we do so with the intention of freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking, which is the, I just, um, all all words speak, uh, word salad from the left in this sort of stuff. The, again, uh, some of the prominent leaders of Black Lives Matter now want to defund the police. And all the police chief in Johns Creek is doing, who is a Christian, who is concerned about police brutality in minority communities, comes out and says, this is not an entity that churches should be affiliated with. 
and he's not wrong. Chris Byers is right. Well, the mob has come now for Chris Byers, and Johns Creek, Georgia, which is actually a fairly Republican part of the state, fairly conservative part of the state, uh, the mob has come for Chris Byers, and the city has put him on administrative leave to investigate him for daring to speak the truth. Which I, I've got to I got to tell you, um, I I I I've I've got to say that essentially what they're what they're alleging is that the meetings about what buyers has done led to assertions of wrongdoing by buyers that are not connected to the Facebook post and an internal investigation into the allegations started. But this is what the mob does. The mob comes and then makes up allegations or or takes problems that people had and, and amplifies them and twists them out of proportion to try to silence the person who la- raised the legitimate concerns. You see this with people in talk radio all the time. How many times has Rush Limbaugh been, his statements have been taken out of context or twisted? Ben Shapiro has this happened to him all the time these days with media matters. The mob comes to shut you up. The mob has come to shut up Chris Byers. And it's really sad to see a city like Johns Creek caving to the mob against this police chief. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425 to Athens, Georgia. We go to the phones to Rooster. Welcome. Hey, it's good to talk to you again. I love your show. Thank uh, you very much. All, all right, Rooster, we, we got to go. No, wait, 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 wait. We got to go back through this again because uh, there are new people listening on new stations and, and we got to go through your name here. Or, y- 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 Rooster. Where's this come from? Yep. Uh, I'm like a chicken noise. <laughs> All right. How long have you been called rooster? Uh, it started ninth grade with ROTC. Before then, I had the nickname uh, chicken, chicken one, you know, different variations of chicken. When I joined ROTC, my first sergeant <laughs> said, uh, Chicken's not macho enough. He says it's rooster. It's been rooster since. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Excellent. As long as this isn't like some new development in the past year yet, since ninth grade, we're going with it, Rooster. All right. Now we can get to your point. <laughs> okay. So uh, you were mentioning with the hate crimes thing, why not put in there police as well? Mm-hmm. Well, there's other occupations that get mistreated as well, such as like solid waste or. Let's say, for example, the DOT, you know, we see DOT with like 15 people standing out there and we comment something uh, that's derogatory about that. Why couldn't that be hate crimes? Yeah, crimes against people because of their occupation in general. Like the the fast food worker who gets something thrown at them because the order was wrong. Exactly. You know, we, we, we could actually, okay. So, Rooster, I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta tell a story here now. That this reminds me of something that's okay. too good not to share. Uh, and, and thank you for that. You know, it's not a bad idea. So, at at every occupation, if you experience crime because of your occupation, you're a fast food worker, and Karen gets her order wrong and comes in and starts yelling and causes a scene and throws French fries at you. Karen should be arrested for a hate crime. You know that sort of stuff happens. Um, the, that's, uh, we, we, we could do this. We, we could, we could go down the road. All right. This reminds me of a story. So, you know, I was on city council in, in Macon, Georgia. 
worst job I ever had. Uh, it was a part-time job that was all-consuming. Uh, it turns out I hate people, uh, and and you have to deal with this thing called a constituent, and constituents uh, are stupid, and it's just not worth your time dealing with them because they don't roll their trash can down uh, in time for the trash collection, and then they get mad at you because the trash wasn't picked up. Because this actually, true story, this actually happened to me. Uh, a, a guy, and in, 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 in probing him as to why... His trash would be the one trash can on his street that would not get picked up. He ultimately acknowledged the fact that he had not rolled it down in time and did not understand why they would not come back and pick up his trash. (sighs) Part-time work. I I wound up leaving about four months early because I got my job in radio and and couldn't. But uh, the, the greatest day of my entire career as a member of city council was the day a member of our council attempted to make Barack Obama an honorary member of city council. Now, I had actually helped get, Macon had a 15-person city council, which was insane, and it was the only partisan city council in the state at the time. There was divided into Republicans and Democrats. Uh, every other city council in the state of Georgia, including Atlanta, is nonpartisan. And um, so I was one of two Republicans who was elected, and... I had helped seven of the Democrats get elected through either uh, running their campaigns or fundraising or, or just helping out in general. As a result, I got a committee chairmanship. I was in charge of the properties committee, which involved covering the, the Middle Georgia Regional Airport and the golf course and, and a bunch of us, man. So being a committee chairman meant I got put on the executive committee. The executive committee functioned as a rules committee. Anything that was to make it to the floor of the um, of the city council meeting had to go through the executive committee and be put on the agenda and had to be approved. And you could make amendments to legislation. Uh, you, you could change things up. You could kill things. It, it was it was a fun time. So because this was to make uh, Barack Obama an honorary member of the city council, it went directly to this committee where this committee got to debate it. And I just decided that if we were going to make Barack Obama an honorary member of city council, and the whole reason this was happening is because the state legislature had declined to make Obama an honorary member of, of the state legislature. And it was it was viewed as a partisan hit, never mind that they they didn't – the only person they'd ever done it for was Jimmy Carter uh, because Jimmy Carter had been in the state legislature. It, it turned into a racial issue. It was a bunch of garbage. Uh, so I just came in, and the rule said you had to have written amendments. Now, it was never enforced, but I knew they were going to pull it on me. So I came in with a stack of over 200 amendments to amend the legislation, and it included such whereas clauses as whereas we don't hold it against Barack Obama, that his childhood mentor was a communist uh, sympathizer, whereas we don't hold it against Barack Obama, that he openly bragged about his drug usage, whereas uh, we, we, uh, we don't affirm every policy that Barack Obama has. And then we also got into the, the therefore clauses. Uh, the, therefore, uh, we, we make Barack Obama an honorary member of city council, but provide him no chair, uh, whereas we make uh, Rush Limbaugh an honorary member of council to provide balance, whereas we make Sean Hannity, Mark Levin, Glenn Beck, Ann Coulter, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, on and on it went, the, the list. And we debated them. We debated every single one of them, and the sponsor just glared at me the whole time. She also would refer to me as Eric KKK Erickson. 
uh, which which just made it actually even funnier. Um, I mean, she he had the the local Democratic women's group had all come in mass, and here I am on this committee. The the, the audacity to 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 uh, me to be here, and they glared at me. I mean, the entire time, and she's over there just muttering, "I can't believe you'd show your face here." Oh man, they were just seething with rage, and it went on and it went on. And I, I got to debate, you know, I, I Mr. Chairman, I, I, I make a motion. And this is a committee. There, there's no, you can't just cut it off. If you've got the written amendments in the committee, I knew the rules of this council. I had read up the rules. Hell, I'd helped write some of the rules. And they couldn't shut me down because I had my amendments in writing and I had a voice on the committee. You couldn't do it. And so everyone, we would debate. Mr. Chairman, I'd make an amendment uh, that we add a whereas clause that whereas we do not hold it against Barack Obama, that his childhood mentor was a communist sympathizer. And would there be a second? Well, there was a second. And so then I got to talk. And the second was was always the finance chair who was not a fan of the presidents. He was a Democrat, but he didn't like the presidents. He was really a Republican, but he was a Democrat. And he'd make the second, and I'd say, Mr. Chairman, I, I don't know if this committee knows this. I don't know if the council knows this, but Barack Obama growing up, his childhood mentor was an ardent communist foe of the United States who had a passionate hatred of the United States. These are the sorts of things that this man said, and I, I think in fairness we should add this, blah, blah, blah. Anybody else wants to say Nobody else would say anything. We'd have a vote. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to make an amendment. Mr. Chairman, I'd like to amend the resolution to add the whereas clause that we don't hold it against Barack Obama, that he bragged about his drug usage, serious usage of marijuana, potential uses of cocaine. Here's what he said in his book. Blah, 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 blah. Second, uh, yep, I and I just, oh, it went on. Well, finally we get to, we get through all those and I'm just dragging it out. And I just decided, by God, if we were going to do this, I was going to make it as painful as possible. So we get to the therefore clauses. Well, we need to do Rush Limbaugh. If we're going to do, if we're going to do Barack Obama, we should do George W. Bush. If we're going to do Barack Obama, we should do Ann Coulter. If we're going to do Barack Obama, we should do Tucker Carlson. He was at the Weekly Standard at the time. Uh, <laughs> and on and on. Well, finally, we get to let's make our spouses honorary members of the city council. We are now more than an hour and a half into the meeting of what should have been maybe an hour-long meeting. And we still got a whole lot of other stuff to discuss. And we get to let's make all of our spouses honorary members of the city council. And the chairman committee puts the gavel down, looks at me and just says, Oh, hell no, I ain't voting against my wife. <laughs> it just pulls the motion from the table. Oh, the rage, the rage. You want to talk about a hate crime? The the stuff some of those people were saying they wanted to do to me after that meeting because of my political views and what I had done. They were out to get me. Uh, I had to sneak out the back door after it was over because they were the the local Democratic women who they were enraged that I would do that. They were out to get me. Uh, but and you know, listen, this this is why you got to add you need to add political um, you need to add people's uh, political views to the hate crimes legislation. Because I, I have seen it. Um, you know, we, we've had people show up at our house before to, to harass and threaten us. I, I've had people put stuff, nasty stuff in the mail to me. People pull into our driveway uh, just because they don't like what I say on the radio. 
some crazy people. I'm just, I'm, I'm saying political views add. And, and then this occupational stuff. Yep. You just, you, you just keep adding it. That's what you do. The legislation add, 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 add. Uh, this is a great way to kill the um, great way to kill the hate crimes legislation Add police. Police should be in there. If you're going to put all this other stuff in, you need to put police in. Do what Rooster says, but police. Okay, we need to we need to protect police from hate crimes. We need to protect fast food workers from hate crimes legislation. We need to protect. Uh, we we need to protect dry cleaners from hate crimes legislation because you know uh, there are times where they shrink your clothes of the dry cleaners. This has happened to me before, uh, and you you've got you get the people get mad at the dry cleaner for screwing up their clothes. That's a hate crime against the dry cleaner. We should be adding that one as well. Uh, you know, a rooster mentioned the DOT. How many times have you gotten mad at the guy who's holding up the sign to stop you? I, yes, uh, I, I I think we need to take care of the, those people as well from the DOT. The, the sanitation workers, rooster mentioned the sanitation workers. How you look, I've had this experience as a member of city council. I've had this experience where someone was mad at me and mad at the sanitation worker because the sanitation worker did not pick up their trash can because they were too stupid to roll it down to the curb. We should protect the sanitation workers from the idiots who get mad at them for not doing what they do. That, my friends, that would be something that we could do. And we should do this. I mean, why are you against sanitation workers, Democrat? When, when this comes up for an amendment why are you against police officers when they want to vote no why are you against the sanitation workers when when they want to vote no on that why are you against fast food workers aren't you don't you support the service industry do you not know how many members of the fast food industry are minorities are you saying that you don't like minorities by voting against their addition to this hate crimes legislation, Mr. Democrat. You could have fun with this along the way. Listen, if you're going to lose, at least lose in a way to cause maximum pain to the other side. Have the Democrats in the state legislature voting against the addition of police officers. Have the Democrats vote against the addition of, of uh, transportation safety workers. Have the Democrats vote against the addition of fast food workers. Have the Democrats vote against teachers. What about teachers? My goodness, do you know what happens when you fail a kid? The hate crime you could get against the teacher? You should add teachers to this. The Democrats, they don't want to give them a pay raise right now either, and they don't want to add them to the hate crimes legislation. Teachers, by God, teachers should be added to the hate crimes legislation. I'm sorry, Jenny, I just said that. I shouldn't have. Teachers should be added. We should add teachers, we should add doctors, we should add lawyers, we should add podiatrists, we should add uh, we, sh we should add the police, we should add the fast food workers, because there are hate crimes. You know, you should probably make a special addition to the hate crimes legislation for proctologists, because you know when the proctologist bends you over and pokes you the wrong way, you may lash out at the proctologist, and he should be protected from you. That could be a hate crime. Of course, what he did to you might be a hate crime, too. You never know. I mean, he gave you the finger you give him one. <laughs> we, I mean, we could take this to all sorts of absurd proportions, but here's the point. Yes, I'm being flippant about this, but there, there's, there's, there's a mass plan here, and Rooster hit on this. Just what I did with, with city council back in the day. Cause maximum pain to the other side. David Ralston, the Fortune 500, and the Democrats do not want to give you the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. You should amend it in the Senate and put it in there. Put RIFRA in here. But not only should you put RIFRA in there, 
you should add other protected classes. The police are a legitimate one that should be in this legislation. Political views legitimately should be in this legislation. There are others that legitimately should be in this legislation. And you should make the – if the Democrats and the Fortune 500 and the Speaker of the House are going to tell you this must pass or nothing else passes, you do it and you cause maximum pain to the Democrats and to the Speaker and to the Fortune 500. When the Fortune 500 and the Speaker and the Democrats come calling and say, no, we're not going to give people a faith protection under this legislation, you ask them why in an age of church burnings and synagogue attacks are you not willing to stand for persecuted religions? When they refuse to add police to the legislation, you ask them, why do you hate the boys in blue at a time they are being hounded out of jobs and harassed around this country? Why do you hate them? And you cause pain to the Democrats, to the Speaker, and to the Fortune 500. They don't want to give you religious freedom protection, particularly after the Supreme Court on Monday made such a big deal out of having RIFRA. Well, by God, you score points with them on this. Uh, don't, don't tell me not to do this because this is what you do legislatively. And our state legislature should do it. Folks, I got a note from Brant Frost at First Liberty Building and Loan. If you still need in the payroll protection program, they are still willing and able to help, but all the applications need to be in by the end of the month. The uh, Small Business Administration are not taking more applications. One of the things uh, he noted is there are a lot of people reaching out who don't think that they would qualify because they're either sole proprietor or the size of their business, and actually um, uh, they, they all do. So if you're hesitant about it, given the nature of your business, just reach out to my friends at First Liberty Building and Loan. They're in Noonan, so they're local here in Georgia. But if you're listening online or, man, we had like 123,000 uniques uh, on Facebook yesterday. Crazy. Um, If you're listening anywhere in the nation, uh, they can help you uh, get into the payroll protection program. They can't guarantee you getting into the uh, program, but there's funding still available. They can still help, but all applications got to be in by the end of this month. So hurry up and get in there. Uh, Mr. Frost actually told me in a prior conversation, you've got to have, you've got to have something to prove your payroll. So like your quarterly filing, something like that. So uh, make sure that happens folks, if you can. Uh, But firstlibertyga.com is their website. You can, there's an application on their website. There's an apply now button. You click it and you can do all your application online. All right. We need to talk about the Google stuff. Uh, I'm going to wait until we come back because I don't have a ton of time right now to talk about that. One of the things that, that I, I need to talk about is the virus is on the rise in Georgia. Uh, we are seeing a rebound in COVID-19 in Georgia. Dr. Fauci has come up. Man, Fauci's made a lot of people mad, essentially admitting that the reason they were telling people not to wear masks is because they knew there was a shortage of masks in the country. They didn't want people to freak out and go buy up all the masks because they needed them for healthcare workers. So essentially, they told people it's not going to do you any good, and it was a lie. And Fauci is, is all but – he's not using the word lie – but he is sure making people mad about it uh, for doing it. And, and he, but, you know, there were reports at the time that we're in a shortage. We need them for medical workers. But now it turns out in uh, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, Croatia, uh, Slovenia, uh, not Slovakia, Slovenia, and a couple of other places, if more than 50% of your population wears a mask when you're in public, you wipe out the virus within a month. 
essentially it ceases to reproduce within your population uh, within a month if 50% of the population or more wears a mask in public. Uh, it, it goes away sooner the more people wear a mask. Uh, in other words, if you wear a mask in public, the virus goes away. In Georgia, not enough people are wearing a mask. We're not at even. Uh, we're not even at forty percent of people wearing masks, or thirty percent of people wearing masks when they go out in the state. And the result is that the virus is on the rise in the state. Now, uh, hospitalizations are going back up, but still below nine hundred. Hospitalizations are going up, but they're not overwhelmed. Ventilator supply is good. Uh, ICU space is good. The hospital space is good. Now, the governor's continuing to get rid of restrictions, as are other states. Well, the fascinating thing to me here still is that Brian Kemp continues to get inordinate amounts of hate from the national media for what he's doing. And yet you've got other states, uh, like, for example, uh, in California, per capita. So I realize California has a, a... a bigger population than Georgia. But if you go with per capita, meaning you look at the number of cases per thousand people, which is a great way to balance out the states, California is worse than Georgia, had a more strident lockdown than Georgia, enforced the lockdown more restrictively than Georgia, has opened up more slowly than Georgia, and is still per thousand people seen a massive spike in the virus. Colorado is the same way. Colorado is seeing a bigger spike than Georgia in the virus. And yet it is Brian Kemp who gets the contempt from the national media because he dared to go first. And by and large, when these other states were seeing spikes, Georgia was not. Now, where is the spike coming from? Coming from a couple of things. One is people who left the state and came back over Memorial Day weekend were seeing a spike there. If you look at the counties in South Georgia around the Valdosta area and the Lowndes County area, people who went down to the beach from there came back, they brought the virus. Troop County uh, and that area out in West Georgia, a lot of people went down to Gulf Shores, they came back with the virus. And then there's Gwinnett County, a lot of people have been traveling. But more than that, the protesters, the protesters as well, are causing the problems. Uh, It's the protesters who are spreading the virus in the metro Atlanta area. Of course, you're not going to hear the media do that. They would much rather blame Brian Kemp instead of the protesters for spreading the virus. They got to make Kemp the bad guy, not the protesters. I'm here. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show. The phone number is, I feel like I should have a different way to, Eric Erickson of the Eric Erickson Show, duh. Um, Welcome conversationalists, as Rush would say. (laughs) <laughs> in any event, you can call in and be a part of the program if you like. Uh, the phone number is 877-973-7425. I want to start this hour with a an issue that it seems minor in the grand scheme of things. There are so many uh, bigger fish to fry out there today. But there is a real issue that I I genuinely think needs attention. And there is a real issue that I think long-term is deeply damaging uh, to a free press, but not just to a free press, uh, to to ideological diversity. There's a lot of talk about diversity these days, uh, and that diversity is shallow diversity. I don't really mean that disparagingly, and I know it comes across that way, uh, and I don't mean it that way. What I mean to say is uh, there is a diversity that comes from looking at a person and saying, oh, you're different. 
you're you're male or you're female, you're black or you're white or you're Asian or you're Hispanic or uh, you, your family it clearly is is uh, a, a cultural blending pot of, of multiple races and ethnicities over time, or you, you speak a different language or you're from a different country. What there is not is an intellectual diversity. We see that, for example, in Seattle. In fact, let me uh, let me get this piece. Where did I save this piece? I had this piece earlier from the Washington Post. It is a profile of the the place in uh, Seattle where the the kids have taken over. And I read this piece earlier, and I thought, you know, if it was conservatives or Christians who had taken over six square blocks in Seattle, they wouldn't get this level of fawning profile. This again, this is from the Washington Post. Antonia Osha has no formal security training, but around 3 a.m. on recent Saturday, they were called to help defuse the situation unfolding on a street corner. A man had been yelling, and he began punctuating his anger by knocking over a metal trash can. Osha, who is white and uses they-them pronouns, did not engage the man who is black directly. Instead, they, meaning he, began picking up trash while giving the man space. He quickly turned apologetic and offered to help clean up. For the past several days, Osha, 28, has been, wait, 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 how can OSHA has been? It shouldn't be, because that, that doesn't represent they. It should be OSHA have been, because they have been. OSHA 28 has been serving as an unarmed volunteer sentinel or guard in the protest zone. OSHA, a self-described leftist libertarian recently furloughed from the Seattle International Film Festival, and other volunteers have been serving four-hour shifts to help keep the peace. This, wait, wait, you mean they formed their own police force? The zone was formed last week amid the Black Lives Matter protests. Activists had gathered at a neighborhood police precinct to call for accountability and an end to police violence. In response, on June 8th, police officers left the area. A spontaneous protest encampment has since sprung up outside the building. Run by volunteer activists, core to the zone is a vision of a self-governing community with no formal policing. Instead, volunteers, many of them avowed police abolitionists, have begun to organize for their own safety force, organize their own safety So they're starting their own police force. Here's the thing, though. And this gets me to the point. This is a fawning profile by the Washington Post of leftist protesters who are forming their own police force. The uh, Washington Post won't call it that, but that's what they're doing. And when you read the piece, I mentioned this uh, to, to David Perdue. We, we talked earlier. You realize that there's no one participating in this who disagrees intellectually. That they all get along. In fact, there's there's a street preacher who comes and preaches and, and uh, talks about damnation, and they pulled him to the ground and attacked him. They're doing this in a way that allows for intellectual isolation and a lack of intellectual diversity. They can focus on the diversity of the crowd, and they totally ignore the fact uh, that there's no diversity of thought. 
And in real society, there's diversity of thought. In, in real society, actually, uh, the left won't allow conservatives to be left alone. They must be silenced. They must be driven away. They must be forced to adhere to left-wing ideology. They must be made scared so they don't say anything, or they must be made to care in a particular way, which leads me to NBC and Google. NBC News became an activist yesterday. NBC News has been doing this a lot lately. NBC News targeted uh, Zero Hedge and The Federalist because a sympathetic group to Black Lives Matter did a report saying that they were lying about the Black Lives Matter movement and they were publishing things that weren't true. Google demonetized Zero Hedge and threatened the Federalist. The NBC News reporter who's based in London and was a Labor Party political activist and also worked for Al Jazeera, but for some reason doesn't put that on our LinkedIn page. Uh, th this Labor Party activist turned reporter cheered on the success. In fact, admitted in her piece that she herself had called Google and was the one who got Google to demonetize the Federalist for daring, and what was the Federalist in? For daring to run an article that criticized the media. And it turns out that the article itself, there was nothing wrong with the article. It was a comment to the article by a commenter who did not work for the Federalist, but like the New York Times, allows a comment section. And of course, you know, I got rid of the comment section at, at the resurgent because comment sections always go straight to hell. Uh, and uh, the Federalist, uh, the law is very clear, isn't responsible for its comment section. And But yet they're being punished by Google for their comment section in a way Google would never want to be punished by the federal government. Let me read you uh, what this reporter from NBC News wrote. Google blocked the Federalist from its advertising platform after the NBC News verification unit brought the project to its attention. In other words, this woman who heads the NBC News verification unit brought the project to Google's attention and had the Federalist blocked. Zero Hedge had already been demonetized prior to NBC News's inquiry, Google said. Zero Hedge and the Federalist did not respond to requests for comment. Now, Google has since come out and said, no, wait a second, you're wrong. We didn't demonetize the Federalist, but we made them take the comments down. Google does not want to be held responsible by the, by the federal government for things that appear on Google. And yet Google is making this publisher be responsible for random commenters on that commenter site. It is a double standard. And it is being targeted at conservatives. It's not being done to the left. Here's my friend uh, John Davidson. He was on Fox News talking about this. I personally never read the comments, so and I encourage no one to read the comments. Um, no, but this was really about trying to get the Federalist deplatformed, demonetized, and shut down because somebody over at NBC News doesn't like the fact that we often criticize NBC News and other mainstream media outlets for being dishonest and disingenuous, which they are all the time. And this is a great case in point, what you just explained. This entire story came out because NBC News brought this to Google's attention and then asked Google to comment on it or do something about it. NBC News didn't like criticism of NBC News and went to Google, a left-wing organization, and got Google 
to shut down ad revenue for the site. Now, there are two competing dynamics here for people on the right. Google is a private company and can do as it wants. But Google increasingly is monopolistic. You can go uh, multiple days on end without ever encountering Facebook. In fact, I, I this weekend it did not encounter Facebook at all. But if I wanted to get on the internet and find a restaurant, inevitably I had to interact with Google. Now you can say you can go to DuckDuckGo or, or what have you, but Google has expended a lot of time, effort, energy, resources, money to ensure that every other web browser out there is never going to be as good as Google. Google locked down a bunch of information into Google's system uh, when no one thought search engines could ever be uh, monopolies and has monopolized not just search, but Google also then went out and bought a bunch of advertising networks. Uh, DoubleClick and a bunch of other advertising networks that were independent companies were bought by Google, are now part of Google, and Google can use them monopolistically on the internet to control the revenue of other sites and make those sites play well with Google. This is one of the things you probably don't understand if you're not a web publisher, is that Google will uh, enhance the search results that your website gets in its search browser if you comply with things Google wants you to do. Google has that much control over how your content displays. We at, at The Resurgent have repeatedly been had pages demonetized because we wrote, for example, about guns, and Google's not going to monetize that. You know, Google has reached out and and wants us in some way here to uh, do more stuff on YouTube. But uh, why would I want to do that, given how Google targets conservative groups? And that's the other thing here. Google constantly does this uh, uh, one-sided. You don't hear about Google doing this to left-wing sites. And more surprisingly, well, I guess it's not really surprising in these days, this day and age. You don't hear progressives out there saying Google shouldn't be doing this. A lot of progressives are cheering it on. They view the Federalists as a hate site. I, I've got a lot of reporters uh, who really hate, who are friends of mine who hate the Federalist. I've got a lot of good friends. I, I mean, frankly, Ben Dominic, who's the founder of the Federalist, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing for a living, but for Ben. Uh, Sean Davis has been a friend of mine for years. And you don't see people on the left stepping up and saying, wait, this is wrong. You don't see it because they're okay with the censorship and they want to throw in conservatives' faces. Well, Google's a private business. They can do whatever they want. You said so. Except no conservative genuinely takes that as a, as a blanket position when they're a monopolistic enterprise. Libertarians might, but conservatives wouldn't. Conservatives do recognize there can be predatory monopolistic uh, interests and behaviors by a company like Google. And there is. When Google can end the monetization of a website, here, here, frankly, with the resurgent, we were able to move away to a smaller ad sales group than Google. They do exist. They're not nearly as robust. Uh, we will see what happens to us in search when it comes to Google, things like that. But you got to remember, according to Google's own employees, Google needs a diverse workforce to oversee its algorithms so that those minority voices will be reflected in the search and the ads and everything else Google does. But the same people who want diversity to participate in the, in the shaping of the algorithm don't want conservative intellectual diversity. They only want the diversity of skin, race, uh, creed, sexual orientation, transgender. They, they don't actually want differing diversity of thought. They want different diversity of physical attributes. They want uniformity of left-wing thought. 
And now we are seeing a major media enterprise, NBC News, collaborate with a major company, both of which lean left politically, trying to demonetize and silence conservative sites. And it is at the point where if they do behave in this way to shape opinion and access to information and shape their algorithm to exclude conservative thought, then the federal government is going to have to intervene because they are behaving as a monopoly. They essentially are a monopoly, and maybe it actually is time to start thinking it's time to break up companies like Google. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number 877-97-ERIC-877-973-7425 to Habersham County. And Tom, welcome to the program. Hey, Eric. (laughs) I think this might be a bit related to what you've been talking about. Um, as far as lack of diversity in thought. So what do you think, Eric, will happen um, to NFL players who choose, if, if, if any do this, who choose not to take a knee? What will happen in the media? What will happen on the field with <laughs> you, other you, players? You know, Tom, former NFL players. <laughs> uh, look what happened to Drew Brees. Um, they're, they're coming to get them. Listen, there will be a lot of them who don't, uh, take a knee, uh, the patriotic Americans, uh, who had military service, who don't take the, they are going to be the ones the media treats like garbage, uh, and they'll weather the storm. I suspect they'll become fan favorites. You know, look at, look at the Kaepernick situation. Uh, if we can for a minute, Kaepernick really isn't the greatest football player out there. And he's doing so much of what he's doing now. Uh, playing professional victim as much as martyr to a cause. Uh, like, remember when he came to Atlanta and he was going to go to the the uh, Falcons football facility in Gainesville and instead showed up at a high school, didn't give anybody notice to actually come down, had the whole camera crew there, and then played a victim again. Uh, you know, the reason that Colin Kaepernick isn't getting a job in the NFL, despite all these owners going woke, is because they don't particularly care for the guy. And... I don't blame them given his antics and, and and he's not a particularly great football player. Uh, and, and frankly, I think he did change his story on, uh, why he was or was not taking a knee. I, I, I don't really think given the makeup of NFL fans that if the NFL continues to go woke, that it's actually going to help them. Uh, Roger Godell, I think, is really stuck in a very difficult position. He is uh, definitely of the left, uh, sympathetic, good white liberal, and wants to be as supportive as he possibly can. And yet the base of fans isn't necessarily there. I mean, take what's going on with NASCAR right now. I'm not a NASCAR fan. Uh, Most of my family is. I've just never felt the need to watch cars going around in a circle. But I got a lot of friends who are NASCAR fans, and you had the 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 one uh, racer come out with a Black Lives Matter car, and now someone else is coming out with a Blue Lives Matter car. And I can I can guess which one's going to be the big fan favorite at NASCAR. This whole idea that you need to, in some way, virtue signal, you're not actually going to do anything. I mean, let's be really honest here. Good white liberals don't actually want to suspend or or give away their power to anyone who isn't a good white liberal. 
and that includes good black liberals, good Muslim liberals, uh, good Hispanic liberals, no good white liberals want to keep it for themselves. And for a long time, because they control so much of the media, they've been able to demonize white conservatives and say, no, it's these guys that are the problem here, not those of us who actually control access. I mean, for God's sakes, look at the Fortune 500. The Fortune 500 is out there on a near daily basis now signaling their virtue on this cause and how they're going to make they're going to make really big changes. I don't see any of these white CEOs stepping down and saying we've got to we've got to make a CEO who's a minority now. I don't see any of the big Fortune 500 companies right now firing white people to put in black people. Of course, that would get them lawsuits. But I don't see any of them voluntarily stepping down. They're saying, you go first or have the government make us do it. It's all well and good to say, I care. Message, I care. But they're not actually doing anything. Uh, they're throwing money around. And, and this is really what part of it. It, it becomes a shakedown scheme for, for progressive groups out there. I mean, look at the Black Lives Matter group, uh, the, the the far left group. They're getting tons of cash these days. And you know who they're turning around and giving it to? People like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, and the like. This just becomes a, a circular scheme. And then nothing improves, and that just hardens more hearts and makes more people angry. You have all of these companies now. They want to do uh, diversity sit-down discussions. Can you really, by the way, have a diversity sit-down discussion? Can you really do it? Because in my experience, uh, what happens is someone comes in, they're naive enough to think that people want really an honest conversation, and they have a real honest conversation, and then they get fired for saying the real honest thing. Do you know how many people are out there right now? I, I get emails on a daily basis. Why aren't we talking about crime in the black community? Why aren't we talking about the collapse of the family in the black community? You know what? You can't raise those issues right now because if you raise those issues, you're, you are predetermined to be a racist for daring to raise those issues. You can't do it. Don't 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 bring those up. You, you go sitting around. Look what happened to Louis Giglio. He used a phrase inartfully. He should have used a better phrase. He should have been more thoughtful than that. He was trying to be clever, and that was his problem. But the point he was making was sound, and it is agreed to by virtually everyone who cares about this issue, and they want to burn him to the ground because of the phrase he used as opposed to the point he was making. Pay no attention to his point. We've got to attack the guy. I was stunned by the number of people. Well, this was just criticism of him. I'm sorry. It's not criticism of him when you're also then attacking him for making his apology to a reporter because the reporter's white. That's not criticizing him. That's shaming him. That's saying you don't really want to have the honest conversation you claim you want to have. All right. Here's the deal. Uh, We will be firing up very soon the uh, activist list to make sure that the members of our state legislature include police officers as a protected class in the hate crimes legislation. And if you want to get in on the action, so to speak, Uh, I want you to text the word ARMY to 33777. Now, how will this work? Uh, I will open an activist portal for you, and you will get an email from me. You've got to text the word ARMY to 33777 to be on the list. And you will then be able very quickly, many of you have not seen this in action. It's actually a very cool piece of technology. Uh, Pay for it myself. And you will be able to reach out to your member of the state Senate and say police officers should be a protected class in the hate crimes legislation and demand that they do so. 
And in so doing, uh, you will essentially overwhelm the state Senate and make them realize that there is a big movement for something like this. What happens is you text the word army to 33777 and then you'll get asked for your email address. And in emailing you back, uh, you will get a link to the activist portal. And in the activist portal, you will put in your uh, zip code and your name, and it will automatically then be able to generate emails, tweets, Facebook messages, and then connect you by phone to your member of the state Senate to say, uh, yes, please add police to the a list of protected classes um, to do this. Now, if you've already in the past texted army to 33777, there's no reason to do it again. If you can't remember, you can go on and do it. Um, but text army to 33777 is time to take a stand. If we can't stop the hate crimes legislation, we should at least work very hard to improve the hate crimes legislation. And I will make it easy for you to take that stand, uh, but you've got to be willing to take the stand. This is something that needs to happen. We need to add police as a protected class to the hate crimes legislation and political thought. I, I, I think we need to do political thought to the hate crimes legislation as well. Um, if we can't stop the bill, at least work to improve the bill. I think that would be an important thing for us to do as a, as a community of conservatives who do care about this issue greatly. Now, I want to spend a moment and talk about something with you guys and give you some somewhat of a heads up because because you know normally I have a pretty strong answer one way or the other way when Charlie my producer says do you think this is a good idea normally I, yes or no and I don't know on this one uh, John Bolton's book is coming out uh, the White House vetted the book and said there was nothing that could prevent its publication. And so it headed into publication. The book was printed, and then another White House uh, official has now intervened and said, no, wait a second, you can't do this, and we're going to sue to stop you. And Bolton has decided, uh, damn the torpedoes, full steam ahead, and uh, that that's what he's going to do. I, so I, I, I don't, I've never, well, I think once or twice I, I've interacted with John Bolton in person. Uh, I've always liked the guy. He's always been a conservative stalwart. Uh, he's always been strongly pro-America, and, and he helped the president shape a robust and good foreign policy, but he clearly has issues with some of what the president has done. He's got his book. I have no idea what's in the book, and I have just decided I am perfectly willing to allow him to come on the program and talk about his book. They're going to send me a copy. I'm going to read it, and I am perfectly willing and able to have John Bolton come on the program and talk about it, and you may hate my guts for doing it. Uh, but uh, get your own show if you do. This is my show. You don't have to listen. You can change the channel. But I, I just, I've always been fascinated by this guy. And it's very interesting to see a guy who has been a hero to much of the, the Trump movement. Remember uh, when H.R. McMaster was the national security advisor to the president, there was a real movement to get John Bolton into that position. And they did. And Bolton was great, and the president got along well uh, until you had the the Syrian situation, and and uh, Bolton was finally Bolton actually quit. The president said he was fired. Bolton actually quit. I I just think it's worth. Um, 
I think it's worth hearing John Bolton out. I think a man who has done as much as he has done for the conservative movement and for the country deserves to be heard and and to be treated fairly. And I'm just not willing at this point in my life to say, well, everyone on my side hates this person. I'm not willing to hear them. That, to a degree, it's like the, the NBC News Google situation with the Federalist. You have members of the media who would be outraged if NBC News got Google to demonetize another media outlet. But because they don't like Molly Hemingway or Sean Davis or Ben Dominich or The Federalist, uh, you got a lot of people keeping their mouths shut who would otherwise be outraged. And I just don't think uh, life is too short to be that tribal. Life really is too short to be that tribal. I, I just don't think that that's a position I ever want to find myself in where I am denouncing or keeping silent on something uh, because I, I dislike the person or I don't want to make you guys mad. Now, I, I have been plenty of times on the wrong side of you guys on issues. And it, it, assuming I'm on the, I, I, I'd like to think I'm going to be on the air for the next 30 years. There will be plenty of other occasions to get you people mad at me on stuff. But I would really hate to go to sleep at night and say, man, I didn't talk to this man who's done so much for conservatism and for the country because I was afraid a listener would get mad at me. Or I was afraid he would say something disparaging about the president who I myself have criticized. I think when if John Bolton is raising concerns about this administration, then conservatives should pay attention. And so I have invited John Bolton to come on the program. Nobody knows what's actually in the book. Nobody's read the book. Part of me has wondered if it's a trap. Part of me has wondered if John Bolton is writing this book. There, so much has come out about it. And uh, the reality is that it's, it's actually not going to put the president in a bad light. Uh, it, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes, but uh, I have invited John Bolton to be on the show. Uh, it, it will happen at some point in the next couple of weeks, and I will give you advanced warning if you cannot tolerate listening to someone that you all liked until the moment he said something not nice about the president. Which, is, by the way, can I just say, as I say, this is the worst part of American politics in the 21st century. You, you've got a guy who you've, and by the way, this happens on the left too. This happens on the left. It happens on the right. You have someone who was met with wide acclaim and fame who then dared to express an opinion or criticize someone that, that uh, you, you disagreed with their opinion or you, you didn't like their take on the person you felt they were insulting and they must now be destroyed. They must be burned or they must be canceled. It's not just the left that participates in cancel culture. It's the right as well. If someone disrupts your shibboleths, they must be destroyed. If someone, uh, if someone rocks your worldview, it must be. You can't even consider someone on the other side. You know, I have made a point over the years to have friends who disagree with me politically. Why? Because I can have some of the best conversations with them because I know we're never actually going to talk about politics because there's no way we're going to find common ground on politics. But we can find common ground on liking the Braves or on food or or you name it. But also, I have friends who I do engage with, who I do disagree with on, on the left and the right. 
And I, I'm I'm continually stunned these days on the people who cannot get along in a group of people because up there there's a liberal or there's a conservative. And by the way, it's more common to have a, a liberal who won't get along with someone on the right, who won't be a part of something as long as there's a conservative. But I, I know conservatives who they don't want to be a part of a group if there's a liberal. They don't want to be, even though it, it, the, the organization has nothing to do with politics, they become paranoid and convinced that, oh, their politics are going to creep into it. We're The reason we're going to do this charity is because that liberal wanted us to do it. The reason we're not going to do this charity is because that liberal didn't like it. Life is too short to live your life that way. And increasingly on both sides of the aisle, people do it. And it is ridiculous. It is annoying. It, it is one of the reasons the country seems to be broken right now is because there, there are too few people who are willing to say, you know what? I disagree with this person politically, but they're actually right on this. They can't ever be right because they're a liberal. No, actually, they may be able to. And, and But again, you, you increasingly find this on the left. You as a conservative, if you're listening right now, are more likely to encounter liberals on a daily basis than liberals are conservatives. Look at the place in Seattle. In Seattle, you've got this, this six-block thing. They've now shrunk it. It's down to about three blocks. But you've got this area, and it is full of a bunch of mostly white hipster liberals who do not have to encounter anyone who dares to make them feel unsafe by uttering a conservative thought. And the media gives them a a fawning profile. The media would never give a fawning profile to a conservative that did this. The media would never give a fawning profile to, to, to Christians who do this. Look at the, the way, so um, uh, Rod Dreher has this book, The Benedict Option. Now, contrary to the way the media has portrayed this book, it's not about uh, going to monasteries and closing yourself out from society, but it is about reflecting inward and building a strong church community where you collaborate internally within your church community and, and you build up your faith, surrounding yourself with fellow believers. And the media has ridiculed the idea that a group of Christians might get together and actually live in existence like pick a town. Pick a town. Uh, Christians go together. When the media covers these stories, it is always the atheist disruptor who comes to town and is opposed to prayer in school and sues to stop it. That guy's always the hero to the media. Always and without a doubt. It is, you have a group of kids who get together, they participate in a religious activity at their public school. The hero is always the, the open-minded secular teacher who stamps out those Christian kids praying on the school playground. The left, the media is always willing to allow the left to live communally together where they never have to encounter anyone on the right. But conservatives want to do it? Oh, no, you can't do that, you hateful Christian homophobic bigots, you can't you can't be left alone. This so happens on on the left so much, but it is increasingly pervasive on the right as well. I tried to organize a gathering just a while back of a diverse group of people intellectually in my community and couldn't get it done because a liberal was coming uh, and I just, I, I'm, I'm perplexed by it, but you know, I, I've, I've got 
my, some of my friends on the left will actually are willing to admit their side is more intolerant. But this level of intolerance is just crazy now on both sides. Uh, we, we've got to be willing to entertain people on the other side and hear them out, even if we disagree with them. But see, this is part of the problem. Let's let's let let let's expand this in the moments we have. We've been told for the last several weeks we need to shut up and listen. If you're white, you need to shut up and listen. How many of you shut up and listened? A good number of you. Some of you are like, I ain't going to shut up and listen. I don't need to do this. But a lot of us actually, let, let's listen. Let's listen to the concerns. And some of them, I think, are legitimate concerns. How many of them were not? How many of you dared to disagree? I bet you didn't feel comfortable disagreeing. You know, it's it's like you get invited to your company sometimes. Your company does these diversity roundtables where you've got to sit for five or six hours and, and and share your feelings and your thoughts. And and you know, it's always you know how it works. It's always the 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 white Christian conservative who has to sit there and be quiet the whole time because you know you're going to say something and it's not the people in the room are going to be upset. It's the instructor at the front of the room is going to be upset. And you're going to get in trouble. You're asked to have an honest uh, sharing of views and, and and you dare to speak up and say, well, you know, listen, I, I think there is racial injustice in the world. But I also think that uh, when you look at crime in the black community, that uh, there there's there are probably problems there. And I don't necessarily think they're related to white supremacy. Oh, fired. You can't say you just offended people. I mean, we, we've seen that in the past couple of weeks. People told to shut up and listen, and you listen, and you're like, okay, I got a question. I got a question. Can we not talk about the people on the south side of Chicago who are predominantly in the black community who are getting gunned down by members of gangs, and what do we do about that? Isn't that part of the problem? Nope, 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 not, 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 nope, not part of the problem. That's also part of the white supremacy problem there. We got to deal with the white supremacy because these people are doing this because of white supremacy. Well, how exactly does that work? Well, it's your racism that, that prevents you from understanding how this works. You, you all know exactly what I'm talking about, and it's unfortunate. I really do think there needs to be honest conversations in the world today about these issues. I really do think there's racial injustice in America. I really do think that we need to find ways to help people from communities that uh, have not had the head start that, frankly, a bunch of white people in this country have had. But I also think that a lot of people who say they want to have those honest conversations don't actually want to have those conversations. Or they, they, they want to use, hijack the conversation for their political views and values. They want to hijack the conversation to impose socialism. It's amazing how socialism, socialism solves climate change. Socialism solves coronavirus. Socialism solves uh, racial dis, uh, disparities and racial injustice. Socialism solves the crime problem. Socialism solves, it is amazing time and time again how socialism seems to be the answer all the time. And you know what that means? That means they're not actually willing to have the honest conversation. They just want to impose their worldview and you're going to be punished and shut up if, if you try to have the honest conversation it, it, it is an unfortunate situation we have in the country and it is predominant now going full circle here when you see nbc news trying to get google to silence a conservative site that dared to point out bad things in nbc news reporting and it turns out it wasn't even the story that was the problem it was some random trolls comment that was the problem, but that didn't stop NBC News. Really hard to say you want to have honest conversations 
when the other side wants to stamp you out for daring to raise an issue you think is legitimate, maybe it's not, but you don't know any better. But by God, we're not going to reveal to you that it's from a place of ignorance as opposed to from a place of truth. We're just going to shut you up. It's not really helpful. Yes, you can. Uh, don't forget to go to firstlibertyga.com if you need into the PPP program. Uh, they can't guarantee you'll get in, but First Liberty Building Loan out of Noonan will help you get into the program. Uh, and you can apply online. Uh, and thank you to them for their sponsorship of the show. I, I, I really actually want to spend a moment, though, uh, and, and I do want to talk about one of our regular advertisers and sponsors because I actually use the, I mean, I, I use all of them, Ms. Griffin's Barbecue Sauce. Uh, I'm friends with First Liberty, but let me talk about Chris Burns for just a minute, please, uh, who filled in for me on Monday, uh, who actually his website is Dynamic Money, uh, dynamicmoney.com. And the reason I bring him up is because somebody actually emailed me last night. Uh, do I really use him? Is he really blah, blah, blah? Yes. Um, I, I, I don't know that Paul Harvey ever really did use all the stuff he claimed, the Renai water heater and the like. But I, I like to believe that Paul Harvey was a, was a straight shooter who, when he told you he used a product, he really did. Like Omaha Steaks. Uh, you know, if you go to omahasteaks.com and you put Eric, E-R-I-C-K, in the search bar, uh, you, you'll get a great deal for Father's Day for your dad, and there's time to order still. Uh, but it, it, Chris Burns, he really is my financial advisor. And, and so this person reached out last night and was like, I got to have help. I'm kind of underwater right now. And who can I go to? And he, Chris is the guy I went to. Christy and I, because of medical bills and other stuff, had a lot of money on credit cards, and I, I saw no path forward. And needed to find a way out of it. And he actually sat down with me in his office, looked at all of our finances, said, why haven't you refinanced your house? Says, you've got so much equity in your house, you get enough equity out of your house, you can pay off these credit card bills, and your uh, payment is only going to go up $300 a month on your on your mortgage. I was like, well, let's do it. And we did. And uh, then he reached out a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, you probably want to do a refinance again and, and lower your bill. And, you know, turned if so I, I did all of this uh, back in November, and our our mortgage bill went up 300 bucks a month. And now with interest rates so low, I'm refinancing again six months later and the bill will be back down to where it was, which saving me 300 bucks a month. And in the process was able to wipe out credit card debt. I, I don't think that way. I've got terrible business sense. I just want to be on the radio and, and do a radio show. And I, I, I wish I, I knew where I could go to learn a better business sense about stuff. Uh, but I've got people like Charlie and Philip and, and, and Chris in my life. And so I'm, uh, I will tell you, as I told this listener, I really am a client of dynamic money. It really has helped. My wife and I are still going through the process of shaping a budget and doing a budget and living within a budget, all the Dave Ramsey stuff, but we're doing it with Chris and his team, which I think is, is better and more flexible. Um, and so I just, I, I never spend enough time. I think praising that particular sponsor and I should and given the email I wanted to uh sure has helped me and man refining I'm getting three percent 